Welcome to this talk from the Canon Do Zen Meditation Center. Located in Mountain View, California, Canon Do's meditation practice is open to the public. For more information or to get in touch with us, you can visit our website at canondo.org. That's K-A-N-N-O-N-D-O dot O-R-G. I'd like to thank everyone uh, for coming today, whether you're coming in person or online. Um, yeah, Sazen is really, a, um, and, and Buddhist practice in general, is a really profoundly healing practice. And so, yeah, whether you've been practicing for years or, or just started, it's really quite a remarkable thing that you're doing. And I, I want to thank you for your dedication and for, for being here. Um, so, so this is um, my first Dharma talk that I've ever given. So, so yeah, in preparation for this talk, I spoke with my teacher, um, Zoketsu Norman Fisher, and asked for advice on, on uh, how to give a Dharma talk. And so he said to reflect on two things. Um, one, what is really alive in my practice right now, or what's coming up for me in general right now? And the second was um, a Dharma teaching that I, I connect with, a, an aspect of the Dharma that, that um, yeah, I find connection. And so I did this. And I think like a lot of us, um, perhaps, I, I'm feeling a certain amount of distress when I'm reading the news lately and a feeling, yeah, just seeing what's happening. For example, like what's happening in Israel and Gaza or in Ukraine. Um, yeah, I just feel a lot of sadness and there's a lot, a lot that doesn't make it onto the news. There's a lot, um, a lot of parts of the world that are experiencing violence and conflict. Just Ethiopia, Sudan, Myanmar, Yemen, Haiti, just to name a few. Um, yeah, I'm not somebody who naturally kind of lives in in that despair. I um, it's just started teaching third grade this year, and uh, yesterday I received a um, holiday card from one of my students that had an acrostic poem with my full name, Timothy, on it, and under O, it said optimistic, and I, I, I do feel like I am an optimist, and there are a lot of things to be optimistic about, including in the news. I, I, I was... Yeah, I was heartened that the um, countries of the world agreed to move away from fossil fuels. I know it's a small step, but I, I, I wasn't expecting that. And so I was heartened by that. And I'm, I'm sure there's many other things to feel optimistic about. And yet, 
you know, in this world, there's so much suffering and so much anger, so much conflict, so much violence. And I feel this. And I imagine a lot of you feel this as well. And how, how, how do we relate with this? How can we be with this in, the, in this world? How can our practice help us? Um, this is what I'd like to discuss tonight. Um, so, as far as the second piece of advice that Norman uh, gave, uh, the, the Dharma te teaching that I really connect with, the immediate thing I thought of was the Lotus Sutra. Um, for anybody that's not familiar with the Lotus Sutra, it's probably, it may be the most influential te text in Mahayana Buddhism. Um, it's, yeah, revered by many, many schools in Mahayana Buddhism. And, and Zen is, is a school in Mahayana Buddhism. And so, so it's, it's a, a text that, yeah, many, many, for, for, for many, many years has been very influential. And in the Lotus Sutra itself, the Buddha says, just as among all streams, rivers, and bodies of water, the sea is the first. The Sutra of the Dharma Blossom, or the Lotus Sutra, is the deepest and greatest among the scriptures preached by the Thus Come One, or the Buddha. So, yeah, it's a vast and deep sutra. It has um, filled with stories, filled with parables and similes, um, stories of past, past lives, mythical events. The Lotus Sutra, in fact, uh, speaks of itself many times within the sutra. And it would be impossible to cover the entire Lotus Sutra in, in a, you know, one hour talk. Um, so instead, I'm going to focus on a particular as, uh, aspect of the Sutra. I'm going to focus on chapter tw 12 of the Lotus Sutra. Um, and chapter 12 is about um, the, um, basically that everyone has the seed to become a Buddha, universal Buddha, Buddhahood. Um, yeah, and this is a very important teaching in the entire Lotus Sutra, um, that Buddha nature is universal, that everyone, including each of you, um, yeah, has Buddha nature in you, has the potential for great wisdom and great compassion. And yeah, it's important to note, I'm only going to touch on 
this deep and profound text. Um, yeah, in in one of the books about the Lotus Sutra, okay, we have it right here. Yeah, the stories of the Lotus Sutra um, by Jean Reeves. Uh, in the introduction, he says, "Be forewarned. This book might transform you into the kind of kind of Buddhist who loves the Lotus Sutra and therefore." cares deeply about the world. And he recounts a story of a, um, a teacher in the Rinzai Zen lineage, Hakuin, who um, heard great things about the Lotus Sutra. And then, uh, so he read it, and to his great disappointment, he found it was a bunch of stories. Um, and so then years later, after, after practicing, he came back to the Lotus Sutra. And he was reading it again, and he heard the chirping of crickets in the background and experienced this moment of sudden illumination and, and understood why the Lotus Sutra is called the king of the sutras. Um, I've also... Uh, I also wanted to note, I've, I've heard the wish uh, from some, some members of the Kanando Sangha to study more Buddhist texts and Zen texts. And so um, if you feel inspired, I, I, I really encourage you to study the Lotus Sutra. And I, I brought a few texts. I already showed you the Jean Reeves text the stories of the Lotus Sutra. Um, but there's also a Thich Nhat Hanh text called um, Peaceful Action, Open Heart. Here it is. And then there's the Lotus Sutra itself. Let's read the Lotus Sutra. And so, yeah, if you, if you feel so inspired, I think, I think it's a great thing to, to study study um, the, the Mahayana text. Um, I'm no expert on the Lotus Sutra. I, 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 um, I would say I would question somebody who says that they're an expert on the Lotus Sutra. Um, I, I have participated in a few practice periods that focused on the Lotus Sutra and a class about the Lotus Sutra, but the Lotus Sutra really is an entire world. Um, boundless and difficult to grasp. Um, yeah, entering the Lotus Sutra is like entering something unfathomable and mysterious. It's it's really like to me what I what I thought is entering the Lotus Sutra is like entering our lives completely in a deep way. Um, and so, yeah, um, in this talk, I'm going to reflect on the Lotus Sutra and how, how it's connected with my own life. And because the, this sutra really impact, impacted me and why I'm here today and um, who I am today.
Um, so, so in that way, there's going to be aspects that are kind of like a way-seeking mind talk. Um, so, in 2013, I was living in uh, the southern African country of um, Eswatini. At the time, it was called Swaziland. I had been a Peace Corps volunteer there, and I had also worked uh, for World Food Program. Um, and I, uh, at the time in 2013, I had gotten involved in starting a mental health promotion organization. Um, there was a great need for mental health promotion services in, in Swaziland. Um, Swaziland had the highest, or, and I think it still has the highest HIV rate in the world. Um, and it had one psychiatrist in a psychiatric hospital that was providing mental health services to the entire country. Um, it had an epidemic of um, sexual and physical abuse, over 100,000 of the 1.1 million people were orphaned or vulnerable children. It was a really difficult environment, and I felt like the um, mental health promotion organization that I was working with, um, its mission was to provide um, community members with mental health knowledge and skills so they could support each other. It was really a commendable one. And it was a very stressful time for me. It was a very hard, hard thing. People would come to me in distress. Um, I would hear stories of family members who had attempted or had died by suicide. I heard stories of people who were contemplating suicide. And I remembered my Buddhist practice. And at that time, I, I had lived at the San Francisco Zen Center, at the city center location, and at Green Gulch for about a year. And I had a teacher, Milgan um, Steve Stuckey. Um, and in, I think, September or October of 2013, I got an email that, uh, from San Francisco Zen Center that Milgan uh, Steve Stuckey, my teacher, had been diagnosed with stage four pancreatic cancer. Um, and so, yeah, when I heard this, I knew I needed to go back to the United States, at least for, for a visit. And so, yeah, the plan was to go back and hopefully see Steve and uh, participate in a practice period at Green Gulch and also raise some much-needed funds for the organization I was working with and then return back to Swaziland uh, to continue with the work. Unfortunately, yeah, Steve died not long after he was diagnosed. And so... Yeah, I was never able to see him again. Um, but I was able to raise raise some funds for the organization, and I was able to practice 
to participate in a practice period at Green Gulch. Um, and Linda Ruth Cutts had uh, led that practice period, and it was focused on the Lotus Sutra. Um, and yeah, that practice period for me was such an impactful experience. Um, and by the end of it, I knew that I wanted to dive deeper into Buddhist practice. I knew I wanted to make, make this my life. And so after returning um, to Swaziland a few months after this practice period, I did my best to try to set up the org organization for success and returned to Green Gulch and then spent the next seven years living at the, the three San Francisco Zen Center temples. And so what was it about this practice period that was so impactful? Yeah, some of it is ineffable. You know, I thought of the, uh, enlivening cold late winter air that I met as I walked from the yurt to the zendo at 4.30 in the morning. Um, yurted was where I would sleep um, during that practice period. I thought of, uh, I don't know if, if any of you have been to Green Gulch, you it's pretty close to Muir Beach, and so when you walk on a trail, you, there, there's a marsh, and if you're passing through the marsh, there's a haunting sound of the red-winged blackbird um, that you hear from the marsh. Yeah, these experiences have this poetic quality in my life, and they're almost calling me to wake up to my life. And then there were stories. Um, I remember there was one morning, I think I was just feeling in. It was a time of acute distress I, about kind of the shift in my life and just feeling um, like the life that I had in Swaziland was coming apart. And that, that same morning, I had Dokuts on with Tenshin Rev Anderson. And so I was, remember sitting outside of the Dokusan room. I think I, if I wasn't crying, I was near crying. And I remember telling him that I felt like my world was on fire. And I remember also asking him at one point, how can I help suffering beings? And I remember him looking at me with his wide eyes. And then he gave a half smile. And he said, keep asking that question. And so what I remember most from that practice period, though, was the transformative practice power of our practice, how 
through zazen, through practicing with our uh, with a teacher and with a community of practitioners, through our work together, through our life together, we can transform that anger, that fire, that hatred into loving kindness and compassion. And I remember um, this during Kashin, a talk that Linda Ruth gave on chapter 12 of the Lotus Sutra that was really impactful for me. And that's, that's why I wanted to bring it up today. So chapter 12 of the Lotus Sutra includes two stories, as I mentioned, two stories of universal awakening. There's the story of Devadatta and the story of an eight-year-old dragon princess. So I'll start first with the story of Devadatta. It's first good to provide some background on Devadatta because none of this is mentioned actually in the Lotus Sutra. Um, I think it's assumed that the reader or the listener will know the background on Devadatta and his evil deeds um, before. So I'll quickly summarize that uh, um, some of the background and then read uh, Jean Reeves' accounting of uh, Devadatta's three failed attempts to kill the Buddha. Uh, so Devadatta was the cousin and brother-in-law of Shakyamuni Buddha. He was a bright and charismatic monk who at one point asked the Buddha to be the leader of the Sangha. Um, this was at a point when the Buddha was starting to get old. I think he, by then he was in his, Buddha was in his 70s. Um, but Buddha did, himself didn't think of himself as the leader of the Sangha, and he didn't want to appoint somebody else. Um, so he refused this request. And Devadatta was furious. Um, so he, Devadatta uh, schemed with a prince, um, Prince Ajata Satu, um, in which Devadatta and Ajata Satu would uh, kill uh, the prince's father, King Bimbisara, so that the prince could become king, as well as kill the Buddha, so that Devadatta could be the leader of the Sangha. Um, so this started actually with Devadatta proposing a set of strict rules for the Sangha to follow, um, very ascetic rules. These included uh, living always only in the forest, living only by alms through begging, um, wearing only robes made from rags collected through trash piles in cemeteries, uh, sleeping only outdoors at the foot of trees, and not eating fish or meat. And so uh, David Atta proposed this, and Buddha said, these are good practices, um, but he wouldn't require practitioners to adhere to them. So some almost 500 young, mostly young monks 
thought, oh, these, these aesthetic practices sound good. And so they followed, they were persuaded by Devadatta to follow Devadatta. Um, and so Devadatta and Ajatasattu were able to eventually kill uh, the prince's father, the king, but they, they weren't able to kill um, the Buddha. I'll read what um, he reads, says about this. According to the legend, the first attempt to kill the Buddha involved a complicated plot to hire a man to kill the Buddha, who would in turn be killed by two other men, who would in turn be killed by four other men, who would be killed by eight other men. <laughs> but when the first man came close to the Buddha, he became frightened. Putting down his weapons, he became a follower of the Buddha. Eventually, all of the men hired to kill one another became disciples of the Buddha. Another attempt to kill the Buddha is said to ha have happened on Holy Eagle Peak, where the Lotus Sutra and many other sutras are supposed to have been preached by the Buddha. From above the Eagle Peak, which is a platform about one-fourth of the way down the mountain, Devadatta pushed a huge stone down at the Buddha. On its way, the stone struck another from which a smaller piece flew down and hit the Buddha's uh, foot, causing it to bleed, but without serious damage. And then the third attempt to kill the Buddha involved getting a fierce elephant drunk. When the elephant saw the Buddha coming at a distance, it raised its ears, trunk, and tusk and charged at him. But when the elephant came close, the Buddha radiated his compassion towards the elephant, causing it to stop and become quiet. The Buddha then stroked its trunk and spoke to it softly. The elephant took up in its trunk some dust at the Buddha's feet and scattered it over its own head. Then it went away and remained completely tame from then on. So, yeah, Devadatta here is personified as a bad guy. Um, yeah, he tried to break up the Sangha, then he helped somebody kill their father, and then he tried to kill the Buddha three times. And um, let's see. And the, yeah, as I've mentioned, none of this is mentioned in the Lotus Sutra. So. I, what's mentioned in the Lotus Sutra is a story of um, 
of a past life of the Buddha. Um, in it, Buddha is a king um, who abdicates his throne uh, to pursue the Dharma. Um, the king meets this um, sage named Sita, and Sita offers to teach the Lotus Sutra to the king. And so I'll, I'll read this passage um, from, from the Lotus Sutra itself. And one thing I wanted to note while I'm finding this passage is the Lotus Sutra is written um, both in prose form, you can kind of see it here, I'll get up close to people online and you can see there's prose form and then there's verse form. Originally, it, it was thought that it was entirely verse and then they added on the prose form um, to complement the verse. So I'm going to read the verse form because I find it really beautiful, really poetic. So this is uh, the Buddha speaking. I remember in Paskalpas when to seek the great law, though I was a king in the world, yet coveted not earthly pleasures, with toll of bell I proclaimed the four quarters. Whoever possesses the great law, if he will expound it to me, to him I will become servant. Then there came the sage Asita, who came and said to the great king, I possess the wonderful law, rarely heard in the world. If you are able to practice it, I will preach it to you. Then the king, hearing the sage's word, word conceived great joy in his heart, and thereupon followed him, providing for his needs, gathering fuel, fruit, and gourds, and in season reverently offering them, keeping the wonderful law in my heart. Body and mind were unwearied, universally for all living beings. I diligently sought the great law, not indeed for my own sake, not for the delight of the five desires. So I, king of a great domain, by zealous seeking or obtained this law and at last became a Buddha. Now, therefore, I preach it to you. So then the Buddha shares with the assembly that um, the former king was the Buddha himself, and Asita, the sage, was Devadatta. And that after a long time, Devadatta himself will also become a Buddha. I think he will become Devaraja, a Buddha. Yeah, to me, the story is about a lot because it's not only about the potential or the transformation of Devadatta to, to become a Buddha, 
but it's also um, that um, it's also about seeing the Buddha in everything, seeing the Buddha in what we see as evil, seeing the Buddha in, in the anger, in, in the people that aggravate us, seeing the Buddha in, in the hatred. So what does this mean? I've been trying to reflect on this myself, and yeah, I've, I, I have a hard time because yeah, lots of lots of um, lots of these um, things, like the conflict in Israel and Gaza, are incredibly violent and incredibly difficult. Yeah, there's almost this visceral, real feeling to them, and it's hard, hard to look at them and be with them. But I think that's what, what we're asked to do. I think we're asked to be with what, what we see as evil and to open to, to them. To, to be open to learn learn about what it, what we see as evil to be open to allowing these things to teach us yeah and Thich Nhat Hanh in in uh, this book in this peaceful action open heart talks about all embracing inclusiveness about opening our heart to suffering, to, to pain, to anger. Yeah, opening our heart to violence and the difficulty in the world. Um, he brings up a teaching, um, I guess it's from the Lona, Lona Fala Sutra, um, uh, Theravada Sutra. Uh, he brings up this teaching about about opening up our heart, um, and I'd like to share it with you. I found it really profound. So this is a teaching of the Buddha. Suppose you have a handful of salt and you pour it into a bowl of water and you stir it. Now the water in the bowl is too salty to drink. But if you throw that handful of salt into a river, it will not turn the river salty and people can continue to, can, can continue to drink from it. When you are only a bowl of water, you suffer. But when you become a river, you don't suffer anymore. If our heart remains small, we may suffer very deeply from the difficulties we encounter in life. Yes. But with an expansive heart, we can open up. We can be big enough to hold the pain 
of the, the, the world. And when I reflect on, on um, yeah, I've been reading a lot about um, what happened in Israel on October 7th and what's happening in Gaza and what happens throughout the world. And yeah, when I, when I can really be with it, with an open heart, yeah, what I feel isn't as much anger or hatred or anything like that. It's, what I really feel is a profound sadness. I see suffering beings calling out for help and continuing cycles of pain and violence. I have this statue that a close friend of mine gave, gave to me. It's a statue of the Buddha. And I, I, I really, um, yeah, I love this statue. Um, it's a statue of the Buddha, um, probably crying. I, here, I, I can show you the statue of the Buddha. And to me, it's it's um, yeah, it just communicates to remember um, that when when that um, anger, when that hatred, when when that fire comes up, yeah, underneath there, there's a sadness asking to be with it. So, yeah, the, the next part of the Lotus Sutra includes the story of a dragon princess. And before I um, delve too deeply in, into the story, I, I, I want to acknowledge the misogyny in the Buddhist tradition. Um, yeah, our, the first woman ancestor in um, in Buddhism, Mahapajapati, was repeatedly denied an opportunity to ordain by the Buddha, and was only after intervention from Ananda that the Buddha accepted Mahapajapati into the Sangha. Um, and still women were given more precepts to follow than men. And uh, I think even from what I understand, an elderly, like an experienced woman teacher still is, is supposed to give, take instructions from a novice um, Buddhist monk in some Theravada or some traditions, from what I understand. Um, so, yeah, it's important to acknowledge this. And it's, I think it, it's important because it's important to understand in the text that I'm going to read. Um, and from what I understand, there aren't uh, traditional Buddhist texts or scriptures where a Buddha um, where a woman is seen as a Buddha 
except in the Lotus Sutra. Um, so, so this story starts out with the Bodhisattva accumulated wisdom asking the um, Manjushri Bodhisattva. Um, the Bodhisattvas are, are in the Mahayana tradition are um, are those who aspire to great enlightenment. They they might not be Buddhas yet, but they aspire to great enlightenment. And so one Bodhisattva, Buddha, Bodhisattva of accumulated wisdom, asked the the Bodhisattva of wisdom if in in his travels has he um, has he ever encountered someone who has practiced so diligently that they speedily attained Buddhahood. Um, Manjushri replied that there was an eight-year-old dragon princess. Her eloquence knows no bounds, and she has compassion for all living beings as if they were her own children. Uh, the accumulated wisdom bodhisattva replies by saying, it's unbelievable. And then the dragon princess appears. And um, that's when the Shariputra uh, speaks. And um, I think it's important to note, um, so Mahayana Buddhism comes kind of as a reaction to a traditional form of Buddhism, Theravada Buddhism, which is kind of the, the Buddhism of the great elders. And uh, Mahayana Buddhism means the great vehicle. And they, there's this, at the time, they, they would call the other form of Buddhism Hinayana vehicle or Hinayana Buddhism or a small vehicle. So, so there is a, a certain amount of, and in some, some texts, um, Shariputra is kind of seen as, he's a personification of Hinayana Buddhism. So it's important to note that um, going in. Um, but then, so Shariputra says, says this, you state that in no length of time, um, so, so the, yeah, the uh, dragon princess has, has appeared. And so Shariputra says this to the dragon. You state that in no length of time you attain the supreme way. This is hard to believe. Wherefore? Because the body of a woman is filthy and not a vessel of the law. How can she attain supreme bodhi? The Buddha way is so vast that only after passing through innumerable kalpas and enduring hardship, accumulating good works, and perfectly practicing the, perfection, the perfections can be accomplished. Moreover, a woman by her body has, still has five hindrances. She cannot become, uh, and, and then he goes over the five hindrances. How then could a woman's body so speedily become a Buddha. So then the dragon princess um, has this 
pearl. Um, she gives this pearl. She has this pearl and she gives it to the Buddha and the Buddha quickly accepts it. And she, uh, she then says, I have offered my pearl and the world honor one has accepted it. This was the action. Was this action speedy? And the others replied, most speedy. The daughter said, by your supernatural power, behold me become a Buddha even more rapidly than that. And so then um, the, uh, and she transforms into a Buddha. Um, she, she actually will <laughs> transforms into a, a male. And this is, this is probably because uh, I found out that the 32 marks of the Buddha, which were closely uh, followed at the time, included a reference to the male sex organ. So, um, and uh, so this is kind of seen as the, her verification, the verification that she is a Buddha, which which is really radical at the time. And I, I'd say even more radical than the story of Devadatta. This, um, this is an eight-year-old girl immediately becoming a Buddha when before women had never became Buddhas. The idea was you know, the, the, the path to Buddhahood was seen as long and arduous, and there are stories in the Lotus Sutra about how long and arduous the path to Buddha, Buddhahood is. And, and so you, the, the fact that a child could immediately become a Buddha defies all, all of these assumptions. Um, so I appreciate um, in Gene Reeves's commentary, he said um, he said about this that the, this asks us to use our imagination to see the Buddha in others, to see the positive potential in others. Um, I I would add to this, it's really asking us to open up to everything and everyone, to, to, to examine our own assumptions, our own habits, and our own beliefs, and what we think is and isn't true, and open up to the possibility of Buddha in every moment, everywhere. So, yeah. To me, the Lotus Sutra is fundamentally about practicing with our own lives as they are. It's not about attaining some mythical, mythical experience, but it's about opening up and paying attention to the rich possibility in each moment. So then the question is, how can we take 
these teachings into our life? How can we meet how can we meet this suffering world? Yeah. And to the way I see it, yeah. It's asking us to remember, to remember compassion, to remember wisdom in our daily lives. It's asking us to remember the possibility of having a caring attitude in this world of pain and suffering. When we, when we see that those moments of pain, those moments of difficulty, it's asking us to return to care, to return to connection, to wake up to our lives, to wake up to the possibility of who we are. So yeah, one thing I wanted to say before I conclude the talk is I, I imagine, you know, I imagine for some people connecting with the, these, um, these teachings, these scriptures that were written thousands of years ago is really inspiring. And for others, it might be a little strange. Um, and it might feel like a distraction from what, what, what might seem like essential Zen practice. Um, and if that's what, the way you feel, um, I encourage you to continue practicing Zazen, to continue um, practicing with Sangha, to continue living and pra practicing the precepts. Um, but if you feel so inclined, I encourage you to find find a text like the, the Lotus Sutra to connect with, to bring bring energy to to, um, to to open up to. Because yeah, if you bring your life to it, it will bring its life to you, um, and it will. It will turn you. So, yeah, I'd like to thank you all for your presence, for your dedication to practice, whether, yeah, as I said, whether you've been practicing for many years or just showed up today. Um, yeah, this, to me, there there are many avenues to living a life of kindness and compassion and wisdom and to me um, buddhist practice is a wonderful avenue and yeah I, I i really appreciate that you that you are here um so yeah while i was thinking about this talk and coming up with this talk, I, I thought of a um, poem. You, maybe some of you have heard this poem. It's a famous one by Thich Nhat Hanh, but I, I thought, of, thought of it because I've, I still feel like it's a beautiful poem. I'm, I can be a, 
bit of a sentimental person sometimes, um, but I feel like this is a really beautiful poem. So I'm going to share this poem and then uh, and we can conclude the talk. Uh, the poem's called uh, Please Call Me By My True Name. Oh, and if anybody's not familiar with Thich Nhat Hanh, he was, he's a, um, he was a contemporary Vietnamese, then um, Buddhist teacher uh, who died not, say, a few years ago. And he was very active in um, engaged Buddhism, and uh, he was against the Vietnam War in its entirety. He wasn't for the South or for the North. And so he got kicked out of Vietnam and moved to France, where he started a Sangha that's now throughout the world. Um, so please call me by my true name. Don't say that I will depart tomorrow. Even today, I am still arriving. Look deeply. Every second, I am arriving. To be a bud on a spring branch, to be a tiny bird with still fragile wings, learning to sing in my new nest, be a caterpillar in the heart of a flower, to be a jewel hiding itself in a stone. I still arrive in order to laugh and to cry, to fear and to hope. The rhythm of my heart is the birth and death of all that is alive. I am a mayfly metamorphizing on the surface of the river. And I am the bird that swoops down to swallow the mayfly. I am a frog swimming happily in the clear water of a pond. And I am the grass snake silently feeds itself on the frog. I am the child in Uganda, all skin and bones. My legs as thin as bamboo sticks. And I am the arms merchant selling deadly weapons to Uganda. <coughs> Sorry. <laughs> it's a beautiful poem. <laughs> I am the 12-year-old girl refugee on a small boat who throws herself into the ocean after being raped by the sea pirate. And I am also the pirate, my heart not yet capable of seeing and loving. I am a member of the Politburo with plenty of power in my hands. And I am the man who has to pay his debt of blood to my people dying slowly in a forced labor camp. My joy is like spring, so warm, it makes flowers bloom all over the earth. My pain is like the river of tears, so vast it fills the four oceans. Please call me by my true names so I can hear all my cries and laughter at once, so I can see that my joy 
and pain are one. Please call me by my true name so I can wake up and the door of my heart could be left open, the door of compassion. This talk was brought to you by the Canando Zen Meditation Center in Mountain View, California. For more information or to support this podcast, go to canando.org. That's K A N N O N D O dot O R G.